1: This is the Starship Sover. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 575. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Oh, yes. What a show. What a show. I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have Someone to Watch Over Me by Nancy Cress. But, oh fantastic and our very own Amy Sturgis aims <laughs> I get so excited man Amy aha, you're fantastic. So, we will jump straight into, yes, we certainly will, into Someone to Watch Over Me by Nancy Cress, originally published in Asimov's. Nancy Cress is the author of 33 books, including 26 novels, 4 collections of short stories and 3 books on writing. Her work has won 6 Nebulas, 2 Hugos, a Sturgeon and a John W. Campbell Memorial Award. You know, you just rattle them off. Do you know what I mean? Just rattle them off like that. No, it was few awards. Her most recent work, Terran Tomorrow, the third book in Yesterday's Kin trilogy. In addition to writing, Nancy often teaches at various venues around the country and abroad, and the annual intensive workshop Tao Toolbox. Nancy lives in Seattle with her husband, the writer Jack Skillingstead. And Cosette. I think there's a Cossetti. The world's most spoiled <laughs> toy poodle. Now this story is narrated by Deborah Harris. Deborah is an actor, producer and founder of The Elite Entertainment. As an actor, she has garnered attention and awards for her lead performance in two feature films and her starring role in the award-winning shorts The Force and The Fury and I Can Do This. As producer, she, producer, Should I say, she has been part of the producing team for four features, including Parker's Anchor, which won an audience award at the Bentonville Film Festival in 2017. Most recently, she has been finished producing her film Here A While, starring Anne Camp and Steve Strait, about a topical subject, the Death with Dignity Act. She currently has two more features in development, and in her spare time, spare time, she writes monthly articles for Miss in the Biz and bakes chocolate chip cookies for her deserving friends and family. So, the starship Sova is very proud to present.
2: Someone to watch over me, by Nancy Cress. I still hate this, Trevor said, that you're doing this to Becky. So you've told me. I said wearily, many times. We sat in the clinic waiting room, done in Martian rust reds, very trendy for such an illegal operation. But then, this was a very upscale illegality. Trevor, who had so much money he never thought about it, hadn't asked how I was paying for Becky's surgery, and I hadn't volunteered that I would cashed in my retirement fund at Payne and Jeffers. We'd been waiting on the rust-red conformed chairs, which were not as comfortable as advertised, for nearly an hour. Trevor scowled at me. Amanda, as a tactic, this lacks... Sweetness, I said. I know. I'm not a sweet person, Trevor. This is a surprise. You've known this about me since we were nine. We didn't become friends because you value sweetness. I didn't but I was, all at once, beyond restraint. I turned to him. And Jake didn't marry me for sweetness either. Who wants to go to bed with a lump of marzipan, he used to say to me. And he didn't leave me for lack of sweetness either. Or he wouldn't have chosen... What does she have that I don't? My voice had risen to a shout. The three other people in the waiting room, two of whom were hollow-masked, stared. I twisted my hands together and spoke more softly. He's just erased me from his life. That's what I really can't stand. That he acts like I never existed at all. Trevor put his arms around me. I collapsed against his thin chest and narrow shoulders. Delicate frames were hot now with gaze, and sobbed quietly. The man sitting two chairs away moved to four chairs away. After I finally blew my nose, I said, Trevi, I have to know. Jake was the love of my life. Jake is a cheating and lying bastard, and anyway, I'm the love of your life. Not carnally. (laughs) Overrated. You don't believe that. Well, no. He held me at arm's length. You look like a dead spot in the ocean. Go put on some makeup. Obsession is not a good look for you. Anyway, Becky should be the love of your life. His expression stopped my remaining sniffles. Trevor always smiles, as he is never, ever critical of me. Not seriously. I said, She is. He didn't bother to correct the lie, but he looked away from me and something in my neck went cold. I'd lost my soon-to-be ex-husband. If I lost Trevor, too? I'm here, Amanda. Always. And no, I don't need sweetness from you. I just need... My wristband brightened and said, Mrs. Ryder, the surgery went fine, and you can see Rebecca now. First door to your left. I charged through the door. Becky lay in a smart crib, watching a hollow mobile two feet above her. Bright, non-existent shapes twisted and flowed in the air. Becky's plump little hands reached for them until she saw me. She cooed with delight, and I picked her up and cuddled her, studying her right eye. It was clear. Stained glass green with thick, dark lashes. Just like Jake's eyes. No scars on the smooth baby skin. No grogginess from the anesthesia. No pain. No cloudiness in her iris. You couldn't tell that anything had been done to her at all. Using the software was as uncomplicated as the implant itself. What was hard was setting it up. The manufacturer doesn't do that for you, understanding more than anyone the absolute necessity of customized, unhackable encryption on dedicated and shielded computers. Most wearers of OptiCam implants are not six-month-old infants. Last month alone, six major mobsters were indicted and an Asian dictator assassinated using information from OptiCams. Trevor set up my system. It was pretty minimal. Receiver, screen, retrotransmitter, basic encryption. He protested the retransmitter. This data isn't something you should view on anything but this one screen here in your bedroom. Offline for all the internets. Don't retransmit to your RISTER or quad-D proibent to any screen anywhere at your job. Do I have to remind you that this whole setup is illegal? Just get it working and drop the Latin, it's pretentious. You never did have any sense of verbal fashion, Mandy. No, no, don't touch that. Wait a minute. There. The screen brightened to an expanse of white. I was about to protest that the system didn't work when I realized Becky was staring at the ceiling. She lay in her crib across the room, drowsy and blinking. The white expanse disappeared, reappeared, disappeared again. I said too Shrilly, Mobile on! and her smart crib activated it. Becky's eyes opened wide, and she cooed. My screen showed somersaulting kittens made of light, seen from Becky's perspective as the camera behind her cornea sent its images to the receiver. Mobile off! The kittens disappeared. I crossed the room and loomed over Becky, looking back over my shoulder. On screen was her view of me, head turned away. Trevor said, I still don't think you've thought this through, and I still hate it. Becky, she won't know a thing. She doesn't feel the implant, and the images won't get stored in her brain, at least not any more than they would have from her own vision. Nothing connects to her memory. There are dozens of study proving that. With adult subjects, not infants. Infants remember even less than we do. I wish you remembered less, Trevor said. Remembered less, felt less, schemed less. I'd stopped listening to him. I watched Becky watch me until her lids fell into sleep and the screen went blank. This was Wednesday. On Friday, Jake would pick up Becky for his weekend of shared custody. "'What's with you?' Felicia said to me in the ladies' room nearest our cubicles. "'You're jumpy as a cat!' Cats aren't particularly jumpy, and neither am I. I'm just stressed about the Globe's account." Felicity frowned but before she could point out that Glow was consistently thrilled with our campaigns for them. I was out of the ladies' room, out of the building, in a cab home. Only 4 p.m., but so what? Even a copywriter deserves a dangerous, illegal, utterly stupid hobby. In my bedroom, I turned on the dedicated computer. Becky gazed at the back of a head of a moving car. One head, not two. Jake, alone, had picked her up at daycare then his apartment, not Pam's. I had never been inside either one, but I recognized his half of what had once been our furniture. He put Becky on the floor to crawl, and whenever she glanced over at him, I glimpsed the slippers I'd given him for his last birthday. In college, I'd been a film major. No Fellini retrospective, no Wells film work had ever enthralled me like the images on my screen that Friday evening. Jake's slippers, Becky's toys, a rubber ducky floating in the bathtub. Quick shots of Jake's face, laughing or talking to her. Why didn't the implant have audio? Pam did not appear. When Becky finally fell asleep, I turned off the computer and then sat for a long time in the dark, tears running down my face, rage in my heart. He had no right to do this to me, to Becky, to live his life as if I'd never occupied the center of it. At midnight, I gave in and keyed his number into my cell. He answered sleepily, Hello? Not breathing, I clutched the phone. More sharply, Hello? And then, Amanda, if this is you, you're violating the restraining order. Please stop. I mean it this time. I'll go back to court if I have to. I said nothing. Tears and rage. Tears and rage. Long after he hung up, I clutched the phone as if I could crush it. On Saturday, Pam appeared in Becky's field of vision. At first, I only got flashes of her. Becky was not interested in focusing on this unknown person. It was eerie to glimpse a red-shirted elbow, the toe of a black boot, the back of a blonde head. It disassembled her, made her less than real. Eventually, however, she sat down in front of Becky and fed the baby strained applesauce. Instantly, I wanted to leap through the lens and shove her away from my baby, Leave her alone, you bitch! She's mine! Pam was pretty, but not gorgeous. A girl-next-door type if the door happened to open on a Hampton speech house. Sun-streaked hair, fine sun lines around brown eyes, no makeup, vintage Lululemon workout gear. On the street, I'd never have noticed her. Her body looked nicely curved, but neither buxom nor model elegant. What did she have that I didn't? Becky spat applesauce at her, and the view vibrated. She must have been giggling. Pam giggled back. Stop! Leave her alone! She's mine! He's mine. On Sunday afternoon, when Jake brought Becky back, I had slept a total of three hours. All weekend, I'd sat by the screen, seldom eating, scarcely going to the bathroom. Becky might wake up in the night. There might be something to see. It was... As I discovered online, a one-bedroom apartment, did Jake wheel her crib out into the living room so he and Pam could have sex in the bedroom? Or did they do it with Becky asleep beside them? By order of the court, ever since that stupid misunderstanding two months ago, Jake and I had no contact when Becky was returned on Sunday. Jake brought his sister with him every single week. Linda brought Becky into my building, and the two of us did not exchange a word. I unwrapped Becky and studied every inch of her, looking for what? Anything amiss? A bruise or a dirty diaper or a ripped PJ? There was nothing, of course. Jake had always been a terrific father. The baby was asleep by 7 o'clock. I called Trevor to come over. My call went straight to voicemail. Felicity had a date. TV was boring. I roamed the house, unable to sit down even for a moment until I stopped cold, feeling my own mouth open into an O. After checking on Becky one last time, I brought the small, dedicated computer into the living room and connected it to my wall system. Trevor had made his fortune with Holoshop. He invented it, patented it, and sold it for an exorbitant sum plus royalties to Microsoft. There had been other holographic conversion programs on the market, but they were quirky, experimental, difficult to use. Holoshop was none of those, and the results were sharper than anything before it. You brought up a flat image on a screen, set the parameters you wanted, and touched the HS icon. The image sprang from the screen in holographic three dimensions. It could be small or large, although the larger you made it and the further away the hologram was from the screen, the lower the resolution. A three-inch rose was a miracle of dense perfection a room-sized puppy was in substantial vapor. Holoshop could not evoke moving images, not yet, although Microsoft was reportedly working on it. Meanwhile, advertisers and artists and retail outlets manipulated holograms to sometimes powerful effect, sometimes laughable kitsch. Ditto the millions of users who wanted the pyramids to decorate their trendy Egyptian-themed living room but to disappear when they needed to set up a card table for poker. I ran the camera images of Jake as Becky saw him until I found a good one. Jake crouching on the floor, smiling, green eyes alight, arms extended for the baby to crawl into them. I froze the image, projected it with H.S., and fooled with it for a while. When it was done, Jake sat life size on my bedroom floor, ghostly enough to see the dresser behind him, arms outstretched. The dresser didn't matter. I got down on the floor and moved to sit in the circle of his arms. The second weekend that Jake had Becky, Pam was there all weekend. I watched them every minute that Becky was awake. They kissed in the kitchen, took Becky to the park, watched something on TV while she crawled across the floor. Pam wore Carson Davis boots and calfskin, $800. When Trevor called with tickets to the hottest play in town, I told him I had the flu. By Sunday afternoon, when Linda handed Becky back to me, I was groggy from sleeplessness, reeking from not bathing. I didn't look at Linda looking at me. I once saw a show about toxoplasmosis, a parasitic disease. When mice contract it, they lose their natural fear of cats, making it easier for cats to eat them and their parasites to get into the cat. There was some evidence from brain scans that the mice realized this lack of fear was stupid, but they couldn't help themselves. They were compelled to let the cats see them. At work, I accomplished nothing. I'd set the Rio transmitter to send the images of Jake and Pam to my wrister. The hell with what Trevor said. Whenever I could, I ducked into the ladies' room and brought up images to study. Felicity went from warmly supportive, Oh, you don't feel well? Oh, I can finish that copy up, Amanda. To faintly resentful, You haven't even started on the McMahon's account stuff yet? But we got it over a week ago. On Thursday night, Trevor called. I told him I had the flu. On Friday night, he let himself into my apartment with his emergency key. I barely had time to dart out of the bedroom and close the door. Trevor, I told you I'm sick. It's not flu season, Mandy. His handsome face looked strange without its habitual smile. If I say I have the flu, then I have the flu. I don't think you do. You're doing it again, aren't you? Two restraining orders and a court fine weren't enough? I'm not. I'm not stalking Jake. You swear on Pussy Willow's pussies? Our childhood oath at ten years old, and it seemed hilarious. Swear on Pussy Willow's pussies. Then you're obsessing over the Opticam images. Isn't that my business? Trevor lost his temper, something even rarer than losing his smile. Oh, Christ, Mandy, you're my business. Don't you know that if I were straight, you and I would have married and had three Beckys of our own? Don't you know how much better I would have been for you than Jake? I can handle your intensity. He couldn't, and I know when you're lying to me. Please go, Trevor. I'm not up to this right now. Really, I'm not. He left, slamming the door behind him. Once, nothing in the world would have kept me from following him. Trevor, my best friend, my support and confidant. On the screen in the bedroom, Becky lay in her infant seat, studying her bare toes. She must have just woken up. On the rug, barely within the circle of her unknowing vision, Jake and Pam made love. Frantically, I keyed in his cell phone number. Anything to disrupt them, anything. The call went to voicemail. Stop! I screamed. Stop, stop, stop! The cell must have been on silent. They didn't stop. I am not sane, I thought. Which was my last sane thought. I called in sick to work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I never left my bedroom. It began to smell of Becky's diapers piled in the corner whenever I changed her, of a pizza molding on the dresser, of me. On Thursday morning, Trevor returned. Mandy? Go away! Go away! I'd waited all week for 10 a.m. on Thursday. Trevor was not going to spoil this. Mandy? Oh, my God. He stood in the door of my bedroom. Becky gurgled in her swing. She was dressed in her snowsuit. The window stood open to help with the stench. Go away! I barely glanced at him. It was 9.57. Mandy, darling, whatever you're going to do, don't. 9.58. Let me help you. You know we've always helped each other. Don't touch me! I won't. You know I won't if you don't want me to. I'm just going to pick up Becky, okay? Here we go, sweetheart. Come to Uncle Trevor. 9.59. Jake's law office was super efficient. The partners would be gathering in his spacious office for their regular Thursday morning meeting. His wall screen would be on, ready to bring up the week's data. He didn't know I had his office password. I'd stolen it right after he told me he was leaving me, but despite everything that had led to the restraining order, I'd never used it. Until now. Trevor said, Mandy, what are you doing? Put down your cell if you're calling the cops. I'm not here to force you to do anything you don't want to do. I promise, put down the cell. Ten o'clock. I pushed both buttons simultaneously, my cell and the send button on the computer. The phone number bypassed Jake's office answering system, a direct line for privileged clients who needed to reach their lawyer instantly for some legal emergency. Jake would not recognize the number of my new throwaway cell. His voice said, Hello? Now it would happen. Now I would get what I had been trying for for so long, what I needed more than food or water or even Becky. I would get a reaction from Jake. The image of him and Pam naked on the rug would burst from the wall screen in his office in its all-color-saturated, three-dimensional luridness, and Jake would know I had done it, that he could not erase me. Hello? Who is this? Jake said, still calm. Can I help you? I waited. Nothing happened. No one in the background gasped or laughed or said, What the hell? Nothing. Jake tried one last, "'Can I help you?' and then cut the connection. Trevor, patting Becky's back, said softly, "'Mandy?' I cried. "'Why didn't it work?' Trevor's face changed. His gaze moved to the computer. He knew then. He was always smarter than anyone else I knew. He said, "'Because Jake knew you'd do something like that.' He put a detailed blocker on his system." I just want him to acknowledge that I exist. Oh, he acknowledged it, Trevor said. How do you think he knew what you'd do? He held Becky, now squirming in her snowsuit, away from him and stared into her eyes. First the right, and then the left. Again the right, again the left. The technology's available to everyone, including Jake. I don't like to lie to Trevor. Sometimes, however, you have to do certain things you might not want to do. He went with me to the clinic, but of course he couldn't sign any papers. He is not related to Becky. I told him I'd had both opticams removed. I swore on pussy willows. Now I stand in my bedroom, which sparkles with cleanliness. Becky sits in her swing, gurgling at me. I lean closer to her. My hair, clean and shining, swings toward her. My makeup has been professionally done. My cleavage gets help from a $200 bra. I smile at my baby. Jake is watching.
1: And there you go. Big thank you to Nancy and Deborah. Nancy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It is an honour to have you on back. Yes, it certainly is. Say hello to Jack for me, if you don't mind. Thank you very much. And Deborah, honestly, thank you so much. She's a beautiful voice. Thank you. So, our very own Amy, Amy, (laughs) EMS!
3: Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And today I'd like to give credit where credit is due, a big audio high five to Library of America. Now, I'm not going to lie. In the past, I have used Library of America sometimes as a symbol of a kind of gatekeeping mentality about big L literature, or literature, as I sometimes call it in class, meaning what is considered respectable and venerable and classic, as opposed to, of course, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, works that, because they are stigmatized as genre, really have to fight for every shred of dignity and credit and, of course, respect, that they can possibly get. To be fair, Library of America's self-description, its purpose, as stated on Library of America publications and the website, really does enhance this notion of the gatekeeper, right? Of, at least in the United States context, deciding what is worthy literature, here I am quoting Library of America's self-description. Quote, Library of America, a nonprofit organization, champions our nation's cultural heritage by publishing America's greatest writing in authoritative new editions and providing resources for readers to explore this rich, living legacy. Widely recognized as the definitive collection of American writing, Library of America editions encompass all periods and genres, including acknowledged classics, neglected masterpieces, and historically important documents and texts, and showcase the vitality and variety of America's literary legacy. "...additional public programs, digital resources, and community partnerships help readers worldwide make meaningful connections with the nation's written heritage." Quote. Pretty tall order, right? And for a while, I've got to say that Library of America played into my notions of genre never getting any love, Um, For example, there were works that we would consider gothic. Uh, The second and tenth volumes published by LOA include Nathaniel Hawthorne's Tales and Sketches and Collected Novels, respectively, and the nineteenth and twentieth volumes are were Edgar Allan Poe, first poetry and tales, and then essays and reviews. Uh, They're not only a gothic author, but a straight-up science fiction author, but a classic author, a respectable one, right? And after that, there was a long wait for anything that looked like genre. But I am happy to say, wow, has LOA ever turned it around? It's an exciting time to have your eyes on Library of America. After Volume 20... Edgar Allan Poe's essays and reviews, it was a long wait. But volume 103 was Charles Brockton Brown's three gothic novels, those being Wyland, Arthur Mervyn, and Edgar Huntley, edited by Sidney Krauss. And I've talked in the past multiple times about how the gothic really was required for the formation of science fiction as we know it. Then, another pretty long wait, But after the success of volume 155, which was H.P. Lovecraft Tales, edited by Peter Straub, well, the hits just kept coming. 173, 183, 193, all Philip K. Dick collections. Uh, Four novels of the 1960s, The Man in the High Castle, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and Ubik, then, five novels of the 1960s and 70s, Martian Time Slip, Dr. Blood Money, Now Wait for Last Year, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and A Scanner Darkly, and lastly, Valus and Later Novels, A Maze of Death, Valus, The Divine Invasion, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, all three volumes edited by Jonathan Leatham. Then, 196 and 197 were American Fantastic Tales. The first volume, Terror and the Uncanny, from Poe to the Pulps, and the second volume, Terror and the Uncanny, from the 1940s to now. Both of those edited by Peter Straub. Volume 204, Shirley Jackson, Novels and Stories, The Lottery, The Haunting of Hill House, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and other stories and sketches, edited by Joyce Carol Oates. 219, Ambrose Bierce, The Devil's Dictionary, Tales, and Memoirs, a great early weird fiction author there, edited by S.T. Joshi. Volumes 216, 226, 252, and 273, all Kurt Vonnegut. Um, Novels and Stories 1963 to 1973 is the first volume, Cat's Cradle, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, the Novels and Stories 1950 to 1962, Player Piano, The Sirens of Titan, Mother Night, and Stories then novels 1976 to 1985, Slapstick, Jailbird, Dead Eye Dick, Galapagos, and novels 1987-1997, Bluebeard, Hocus Pocus, Timequake, all of these edited by Sidney Offit. If you're looking to get into Library of America editions, the place to start for science fiction fans is volume 227, American Science Fiction Four Classic Novels, 1953 to 1956, edited by Gary Wolfe. This collection is extremely satisfying. It captures a unique and rather troubling, as well as troubled, moment in time, while showcasing both the depth and artistry of the best of classic U.S. science fiction novels. The Space Merchants, Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth, a witty, biting dystopia about issues that are as relevant today as in 1953. My students eat this book up, including advertising and commercialism, overpopulation and limited natural resources. It's a compelling read that rewards revisiting. Five words from you, and half a million consumers will find their lives completely changed. That's power, Mitch. Absolute power. And you know the old saying, power ennobles. Absolute power ennobles absolutely. Ah, what a great novel. It also includes Theodore Sturgeon's More Than Human from 1953, a lyrical, poignant look at Homo Gestalt, the gifted freaks who together form a brand-new organism, the next stage in human evolution. It's a fascinating and often genuinely wrenching thought experiment about prejudice, cruelty, love, empowerment, identity, and belonging. Sturgeon's work is deeply disturbing with brutal and beautiful purpose. Next in the anthology is Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow from 1955, a really bleak look at a U.S. Dark Ages in the aftermath of nuclear apocalypse. The main character, Young Lin, flees the suffocating anti-intellectualism of his new Mennonite home, and he fights against constitutional restrictions forbidding the reestablishment of cities, before reaching his goal, which is the secretive Barterstown, where science is supposedly free and unfettered. Barterstown's reality, however, doesn't quite fit its legend. The Shrinking Man is the last story. That's by Richard Matheson from 1956, and it tells the story of Scott Carey, who because of an exposure to a cloud of radioactive spray shortly after he had accidentally ingested insecticide, ends up shrinking at a rate of approximately one-seventh of an inch per day. He encounters all kinds of perils as he diminishes, from a drunken pedophile to sadistic street toughs, from the spider in the basement to the elements themselves. But this is first and foremost a psychological novel, about the uncertainty of the individual in the 1950s, and individuals' places in the possibly futile, certainly alien, post-war world. What he wanted to know was this. Was he a separate, meaningful person? Was he an individual? Did he matter? Was it enough just to survive? He didn't know. He didn't know. It might be that he was a man and trying to face reality. It might also be that he was a pathetic fraction of a shadow, living only out of habit, impulse-driven, moved but never moving, fought but never fighting. Good stuff. Now, these novels were written to unsettle, to uh, discomfort, to provoke thought, and they do so with success. I really recommend this to anyone who is a fan or student of science fiction. And the companion volume, edited by Gary Wolfe, American science fiction, five classic novels, 1956 to 1958, that's Library of America, volume 228, is also wonderful, including Double Star by Robert Heinlein, The Star is My Destination by Alfred Bester, A Case of Conscience by James Blish, who by Algis Budrys, and The Big Time by Fritz Leiber. And the exciting news, these two volumes came out in 2012, and guess what we have to look forward to in 2019? More from Gary Wolf. American science fiction, eight classic novels of the 1960s in two volumes. These will include Paul Anderson's The High Crusade, Clifford Simak's Waystation. Oh, how I love that book! Daniel Key's Flowers for Algernon, Roger Zelazny's, and Call Me Conrad, also known as This Immortal, are a Lafferty's Past Master. Joanna Russ's Picnic on Paradise, Samuel R. Delaney's Nova, and Jack Vance's Inferio. Definitely something to put on the to-be-read list. Other recent publications from Library of America of note, 281, 296, 297, and 315. All of those volumes are Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Brian Atterbury. So you get the complete Orsinia, the Hainish Novels and Stories Volume 1, the Hainish Novels and Stories Volume 2, and Always Coming Home. The author's expanded edition. Volumes 309 and 310 are Madeleine Lingle, each edited by Leonard S. Marcus, the first being the Wrinkle in Time Quartet, and the second being the Polly O'Keefe Quartet. There have also been a couple of Library of America special publications. There was Edgar Rice Burroughs, A Princess of Mars, and Tarzan of the Apes, two volumes there. And even an ebook classic, Lafcadio Hearn's Some Chinese Ghosts. This has an interesting backstory. Hearn was one of the most extraordinary figures in American literature, according to Library of America, a journalist and a novelist, and a major literary icon in his adopted nation of Japan. He published Some Chinese Ghosts in 1887. As, and I'm quoting from Library of America, a stylized retelling of ancient legends, one of his earliest books, a foreshadowing of his later fascination with Asian themes. This collection of six stories reveals his deep fascination with the quote "weird beauty end quote, of Chinese folk tales end quote. So lots of things here to appreciate from Library of America. The last publication I want to mention, I'm not going to talk about in depth, because that's probably somewhere down the road going to be another segment. (laughs) But uh, toward the end of 2018, there was a lovely volume that I highly, highly recommend called The Future is Female, 25 classic science fiction stories by women from pulp pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Lisa Yazik. And yes, That's definitely worth adding to your collection. And so, if in the United States, Library of America serves as a gatekeeper, I guess it's fair to say now that the gates have been thrown open, because we see some of the most important figures in the history of genre literature now getting their own beautiful volumes in this series. And I think that's very exciting. And I look forward to seeing what will be coming next. You can check out Library of America at LOA.org. And with that, I will bring my little tribute to (laughs) the gatekeepers, I suppose, Um, to a close. I have something completely different planned for next month, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Oh, Amy,
1: it's always, always lovely to hear your voice, mind you. Amy's been telling us they've been having, like, ridiculous, you know, I'm jumbling on about my minus two up the allotment. Oh, minus 30, man. (laughs) That's just like an alien planet, man. Amy just bunker down there, hunker down and just put the heating on, man.
0: Right then, lass,
1: look after yourself. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Two fantastic segments there. Big thank you to Nancy and Deborah and Amy. Thank you so much indeedy. Right then. Until next week, just like to say, good night
0: from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm Going slowly, won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already. you're so far from here and at best i'm moving slow so i'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go can you reach me is my signal getting through town on.